Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, just a quick reminder about Other People Premium. For those of you who don't know, Other People Premium is a subscription service, and it's how you get access to every single episode of this program. You can hear my conversations with authors like Cheryl Strayed, David Shields, Edward Judantica, Jonathan Lethem, George Saunders, Roxanne Gay, Susan Orlean, and a whole host of other writerly bookish people. Great talks from uh, days past, and you can access them via Other People Premium. Here's how you do it. You get the app, the Other People app. It's free. You get that app on your Android. You get it on your iPhone, whatever device you have. And when you do, the most recent 50 episodes of this show are there for you free. And then you sign up for premium to access the deeper archives. You can also access Other People Premium online. If you don't want to do the app thing, just go to otherppl.com, the show's official website. Click on premium, learn more. And uh, from there, you can sign up for premium. You can stream every single episode online. You can download shows to your desktop, etc. Other People Premium, do that. It's a good thing to do. Listen to conversations. Uh, support the show. I would appreciate it. All right, let's do this. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, folks, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is marginally popular on the periphery. This is pretty much what it's like to be in my company. How's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, I appreciate you listening. I have a very good show for you today. My guest is Porachista Kakpur, and her latest novel is called The Last Illusion. It's available from Bloomsbury, critically acclaimed. It earned many plaudits, and it's out there now waiting for you. Uh, she and I had a good talk. That's going to be happening momentarily. I do have some news. Before we begin, uh, first of all, I should mention that today's episode is sponsored by Tweaked Audio, earbuds and headphones. If you want to get 33% off uh, of some uh, earbuds, an earbud purchase or a headphone purchase, just go to tweakedaudio.com and enter the offer code OTHERPEOPLE, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L, tweakedaudio.com, offer code O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. Get 33% off, get some earbuds, get some headphones, use those devices to listen to this program. It creates a feeling of intimacy. So as for this news, uh, you know, I've been very open with you guys uh, in the past about, uh, I mean, uh, to a degree, I do have, I do show some restraint, but I have talked in the past about 
my wife and I and how we've been struggling to conceive a second child and we've suffered all these miscarriages and it's been a bummer. So having uh, dropped that on you on this program, <laughs> let me share that, uh, you know, those dark episodes of my life with you. I figure I should tell you that we are uh, expecting a child this summer. And so far, so good. We've cleared like the first trimester and the genetic tests and the stuff that the doctors tell you that you need to clear to have like a reasonable optimistic feeling that things are going to proceed. So, uh, knock on wood. I'm, I'm dead serious. Please knock on wood for me. I'm superstitious. Please think good thoughts for us. I I'm, uh, chastened by past experience. And I realized that, you know, nothing's ever for sure in this life. So I'm a little bit hesitant to even talk about it because I don't want to jinx myself, but I also don't want to be ruled by superstition because that's silly and it's good news. And my wife uh, is showing a little bit, which I love. It's kind of funny, you know, after going through what we've, what we've been through over the past couple of years, you know, we've lost uh, five babies and, uh, or five pregnancies. Some people don't think of them as babies. I think of them as babies, but you go through that and then you uh, have a pregnancy that, you know, so far is working. And, uh, my wife is showing all these symptoms, which, uh, you know, are generally unpleasant for her. And I like it. I fucking love it. I'm like, Oh, you're nauseous. That's great. <laughs> oh, you're bloated and uncomfortable. Don't fit into your pants. Fantastic. So I'm going to be a dad again, I hope. And it's a little boy which frightens me. We found out that it's a little boy. We had a cute moment, uh, with my daughter where we, uh, we, we had the doctor. This is what we did with my daughter. We had the doctor put the gender of the baby on a piece of paper, write it down, put it in an envelope. We took the envelope and we opened it in a dramatic fashion. And what we did with, uh, with our son, with our, you know, impending son is we had my daughter open it up. That's how we told her that she was going to be a big sister. She's very excited about this. For those of you who have multiple kids, you know that it's very sweet when uh, you get to tell one of your kids that they're going to be a, a big sister or a big brother. It was awesome. So far. We'll see what she thinks when he gets here. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's happening. Figured I'd tell you guys. So please do think good thoughts for us. Send us positive energy. I believe in that. Why not, right? That's what I've been doing. Like every night when I, I put my daughter to bed, I generally am the one who reads her stories before bed. We've been doing this thing where we take three deep breaths and try to send good energy to the little baby. Also very sweet. Trying to, uh, you know, like telepathically send good waves of good vibrations or what have you. <laughs> Anything. I just want him to be born healthy and happy. I want him to be as sweet as my daughter just one more. It's so weird, you know, all throughout this process, uh, which I should say has been much harder on my wife than it has been on me, obviously, you know, for obvious physical reasons. Uh, you know, you endure this and a lot of people, you know, they kind of like throw in the towel and I don't blame them one bit for doing that because it's grueling, but I have this feeling and I've had this feeling my entire life. There's supposed to be two. And I also had a feeling that it was a boy. I kind of knew it was a boy. I knew it was a boy before we were even pregnant. I knew that, uh, we were missing our boy. I guess people feel like that. I'm not the only one, but I had that strong feeling and I just hope it all plays out in our favor this time. So far, so good. I'm actually sweating as I tell you this. <laughs> 
and I've broken into a light sweat. It's also warm in Los Angeles. Maybe that has something to do with it. And I'm wearing a sweatshirt. And I'm in a fucking garage with no insulation. It's just like a hot box of dust and uh, insects. So that's happening. That's all I got to say. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. I want to, uh, I want to get on with the show. I want to get on with Porachista. Uh, really enjoyed talking with her. She was totally game. And uh, her book, once again, is called The Last Illusion. It's available now from Bloomsbury. Here she is, folks. This is Pora Chista Kakpur. And my bag and a couple books. And then I have this one window and look outside. It's just complete tundra outside. Really? Well, <laughs> yeah. How long have you been there? Are you, are you like tenured and locked down or are you uh, like... No, no. no. Well, that's why you don't decorate because you could be moving on. At a, you know what I'm saying? That's, I'm a writer in residence for the next uh, three years. So I could... You know, theoretically, get a little bit more comfy in this office, but I think I've just been so used to, you know, I don't know, what's the, was that a Burroughs quote that went, always keep your bags packed? Right. I think that's a drug reference, actually. But, but <laughs> It works. It works. It's, it's, <laughs> in this case, it's like this. I mean, I have these beautiful bookshelves, no book, and uh, I have my cigarettes, my cell phone that's dying, and uh, coats. Yeah, and uh, it's 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 basically you know a boys' dorm room. And you but, and you smoke. You're open about smoking. I like that. I feel like people are there's a lot of like smoking shame these days. And yeah, you know that's the thing. That's the reason. I mean, I have gone back and forth since I was uh, 18 with smoking. You know, and uh, I you know when I got to Sarah Lawrence College as an undergrad, I remember. You know, you could charge a carton of cigarettes to your parents, and it would look like you had bought books from a bookstore. <laughs> so I got there, and I said, I want to be a smoker. I really want to. And it was always my dream to smoke, and I barely ever bummed a cigarette in high school. And so I got a pack of Marlboro Reds, just because the person in front of me got that. I bought a carton, rather. Just oh committed God. myself to a carton. And you went all there. in. Oh, yeah. I went all in. And then... And then I had one after another, and I said, I probably have to have at least five a day to get addicted. <laughs> and uh, I just, it was t disgusting to me at first. But lo and behold, after two weeks, it became, uh, you know, I did indeed get addicted. And then this has been a battle for me on and off through my 20s. But lately, I got back into it, I guess, this summer. 
after a few years of not smoking, you know, I, I struggle with a, like late stage Lyme disease. So for me, it's a little bit extra risque to, to be like, oh, yes, I smoke. But at the same time, I mean, sick people do bad things more than anyone, actually. Yeah. You know, you kind of get in touch with, uh, you know, the, I guess, I suppose, the shortness of life. And you have to do so many boring things so often, like go on these horrific restrictive diets. So it's sort of nice to just have like a vice or two. Are you still smoking Marlboro Reds? No, 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 no. So then I, I got out of that. And I, you know, the Sarah Lawrence thing in the 90s was Parliament Lights. Uh-huh. And I stuck to those for quite a while. Um, would still go to Camel Lights. Um, if I could get my hands on some Galoises, that, that, that would be preferred. Yeah. But then, uh, and then I was in Europe last month and I got back to those. But uh, now, I told myself last week, you know, I should I should quit again, and mostly it's out of shame from students, believe it or not. Really, all, all over Bard, there's these really like passive aggressive signs about quitting smoking. <laughs> yeah, you know your persona non grata. Like, I mean, over time, like you, smokers have gotten pushed further and further to the periphery. Like, can't smoke in bars, can't smoke in restaurants. Yeah, like it's freezing cold. Like, go stand in the snow. And like the thing about it, because I used to smoke, and like. I, I was one of those like crazy hypocrites who was like, I don't, you know, I would smoke, but if anyone smoked near me, like the secondhand smoke would piss me off. Oh yeah. No, no. I'm like that too. No, yeah. no. Sometimes I've gone back to smoking because I've been surrounded by so many smokers and I hate secondhand smoke. And in fact, I, I hated it when we could smoke in bars too. I always liked going outside to have a cigarette. I didn't like from shows, you know, you just get saturated and uh, cigarette smell and all that. I, I like the excuse to go outside because I would just stay in all the time, you know. So, right. Well, and it's a good way to it's a good way to take a break. It's a good way to commu- yeah. commune with other people, but like it's disgusting. It come on, like yeah. it, it's so, like you smell. Like I mean, I trust me. You're, I'm talking. You're talking to somebody who did this for a while. Like uh, it's a filthy, it's a filthy, mindless habit that just like gives you like a chest cold and like possibly worse. <laughs> like, so it does a wonderful thing to your voice, doesn't it? I'm yeah. enjoying my, yeah. you know. I went back to American. So I, so I do American spirits when I want to quit because they're so joyless to smoke. Right. But the one upside of American spirits is they're so harsh in a weird way without their additives. It's still yeah. sort of harsh. The whole, the whole, you, but then the whole American spirit, like con, is that like oh they're natural, like this is this is what like you know like sitting bull smoked or you know like whatever it is you know like they, they trick people into believing there's no chemicals and. Yeah. But there's just, there's something, they're not as fun. They burn a lot slower and there's, it's harder to draw. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And every time I have one, it's like I smoke half a pack. So in a way I love it, but in a way, I mean, immediately my voice changes, which feels to me like my real voice just because I've been smoking half my life. So, um, it's like, I don't it's know. Like the, like the Lauren Bacall thing, like gives you kind of the, the husky, like bedroom. Ah. Yeah. Oh, I love that about. And you know, once in a while, I have to say, even though I know what you mean, it's about sure it is disgusting. But once in a while, I smell cigarettes on men in particular, and I find it really, really sexy. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, okay. Here's the thing: on the clothing, like a hint of cigarette mixed with like so, you know, like something. But then it's like the, it's like the breath or like the fingers. Like that's not as that's not as sexy. Maybe it's just no, like, no, no. You're it's right. Like, it's like the right. hint. It's like the hint of cigarette smoke, like nicotine on the wind. <laughs> Exactly. And I wondered often, you know, I don't like it in women. And I thought, why is that? And I realized it's just there's some, that, that idea of the old sad lady with her many cats or, you know, and I have a poodle. 
which is like having 12 cats, I think. Um, and so I, I somehow, it's not that I don't like it in other women, it's just that I see myself in this sort of sad narrative of being a heavy-smoking older woman who just stays indoors. You know, it's, there's some weird narrative like that that makes me find it more, whereas I guess with men, I mean, my first crush as a child was the Marlboro Man. Really? But, oh, yeah. I, like, I would take out all the, I would cut up the magazines and take out all the, the scenes of Marlboro Country and these, you know, I was an immigrant, so that was an American man to me. So my walls were the one point full of Marlboro Man. <laughs> That's interesting. Okay, so let's talk about this. Let's talk about your immigrant experience because you came over here um, from Iran, correct? Yeah. At a very young age. Yeah, so we left Iran when I was like three and a half, four, when the Iran-Iraq war started. And then, you know, we had that sort of that narrative you often hear. You know, we went through, uh, went to Turkey from there, went to, you know, Europe and bounced around with random wealthy Iranians. And then uh, then we finally got to the U.S. and uh, first got to Cambridge. My dad had gone to MIT. Um, and, you know, Well, he had gone or he went when you got here? No, he had gone in, 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 the, in the late 60s and early 70s. He got his PhD at MIT. He was a, gotten some prestigious scholarship to go there. And so that was all he knew in the U.S., really. But I think what happened was he immediately got into dorm mode again. And my mom was like, I can't live like this. What <laughs> do you mean? He was, he was partying and like, like doing keg stands and stuff? I think he just didn't know how to live, be a family man. <laughs> I don't know what that exactly means for my dad. But I think he probably, you know, didn't find a nice place for us to live. And, you know, he didn't really know what to do with us, me and my mom. And, and you know, I was, I was at that point five. And so my mother said, well, all the Iranians are in Los Angeles. Let's just do that. And uh, then they ended up there. Though we didn't live in that, that you know, you know the portmanteau, Tarangelis. You're in L.A., right? Yeah, no, but to, to explain it to me. Yeah, so, so you know, basically, I would say it's Westwood, parts of Brentwood, Beverly Hills, Santa, parts of Santa Monica. You know, we know that as Tarangelis right. um, since the 80s because, it, it, you know, that's, that, that's the biggest Iranian population outside of uh, Iran. That's yeah, the real... my, my landlord is Iranian. Of course, yeah, of course. There. We, remember Jimmy Del Shaw, the mayor of Beverly Hills, was even Iranian, I think. Is oh, he still there, I wonder? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, it was, so, you know, it was full of Iranians, but very wealthy Iranians. And we were in the we were in the category of more like academic class. But on my mom's side, there was definitely some wealth. But we, we, we truly did lose everything. So then. Yeah, so, okay, so wait. How old are you when you make the, when you make the uh, attempt to flee? And what and what is and what does that look like? I mean, you know, like uh, you were you were like what three years old, four years old, three and a half, four, yeah, through five, and uh, it basically. I mean, I do have some early memories of it, and one was some you know weird false air raid stuff, and I don't know if that's they appeared to be real air raids. I don't remember what you actually call them in the night sky in Toronto terrifying and i remember being in my mother's arms outside of our bomb shelter and her crying and praying and and then the other memories i have are of us sitting in a bus once and once in a train and me my parents being very distraught and me realizing that i had to tell them stories in order to distract them and so they often had 
pen and paper. You know, we, we left, they had lived in an incredible, um, I guess a condo, you'd call it an incredible condo in a very wealthy part of Iran. They had lots of nice stuff, and we left everything behind. I mean, it was just they packed overnight, basically. It was very yeah. literal fleeing in their, in their case. Okay, so wait. So, like, when you flee, like, does this mean, like, in the dark of night, like, everyone's in the trunk of a car getting smuggled across the border, or does this mean you can get in, like, an airplane and, and just get out of the country? Well, from what my parents say, they, they believe that airports were not operating properly, and because on my mother's side... Um, you know, my great uncle is the deputy prime minister of Iran under the Shah and uh, head of atomic energy under the Shah. Um, they they weren't formally blacklisted, but they felt that um, that pressure at least from from nearby, let's say. And so there there was the reality of you know there are no there's nowhere to go, but there was also their own paranoias and worries. And I, I think in their case, they believed, oh, we have to leave for a little while and then we'll come back. I mean, my family, we lived in a small apartment in South Pasadena, California, um, until recently. My parents just bought, bought their first property two years ago in Glendale, a small condominium. Um, were you, were it, you an only child? Any, no, I have a little brother as well, five years younger. Okay. And, you know, my, my little brother and I shared a bedroom until I was 18 in this small two-bedroom in South Pasadena where there were no Iranians, basically. And oh, part of it is, you know, my parents really had no money. We were very much lower middle class. I mean, my brother and I grew up lower middle class, but my parents were formerly upper class. So there was this really bizarre, interesting class divide in our household. But the other part of it is they always thought they'd go back to Iran and reclaim everything. Uh, up in, my dad, I think, still believes this to right. some degree. Well, but that's traumatic. I mean, to leave in like the middle of the like basically to pack everything in you know whatever you can in a night and to flee your home and to never return like to be an ex to be an exile is is has got to be just like really psychologically intense. Oh yeah, I can't you know imagine that. I, I think about that all the time. You know, they were younger than me. They were in their late you know mid to late twenties. And uh, how do you just do that? How do you just suddenly leave behind everything you know? I mean. For me, it's easier to imagine because I'm still poor, but especially <laughs> imagine if you have like a, a nice house, you have nice things, you have great friends, you, you know, you have a great job. Yeah. They just left it all. I mean. Well, but see, the thing is, though, is that like I can also imagine what it must be like to have a young child. I have a young child. So if you're in a, in, in a place where you, you don't feel safe and especially when you don't feel like your child is safe, like. Uh, that becomes intolerable very quickly, and, and far more quickly, I think, than it would become if you didn't have a child. Like, I feel like uh, adults who don't have children, you know, can kind of uh, tolerate uh, a higher level of chaos in their immediate surroundings. But yes. you know, you don't want you don't want like a three year old being like, you know, mommy, what's that siren? You know, like, why are you why are you sobbing, mommy? You know, like that kind of stuff. Just you can't tolerate it. I've kind of been through that. Um, to a far lesser degree, just in Los Angeles, you know, with the stuff that like my daughter sees and you're like, okay, we need to get her into an environment where, you know, we, we don't want her to be like in a, in a bubble, you know, we live in, that's part of the reason why we live in the city, but we also don't want her like on a daily basis being subjected yeah. to like the, the really gritty chaos of it all, because it's too much for a kid to process. And it's scary. Yeah. How old is she? She's uh four or yeah. Wow. Yeah. Right. She'll be five. Uh, she'll be five in the summer. So. You know, right around the age when when you were being uh, shuttled around the globe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they say in the first few years of your life that stability is so important. I think 
you know, especially the first three years, you're supposed to just be shielded from everything or something. And those were the most turbulent years in many ways. So how did it manifest for you behaviorally? Like, have you, did you notice, have you noticed things about yourself, like developmentally as you've aged? And like, did you ever have like uh, any kind of like PTSD yeah. symptoms or anything like that? Oh, sure. Yeah. I, you know, PTSD and OCD has always been part of me. And uh, I think... Uh, so on the one hand, I had those problems and, and, and all, like sort of weird things like, you know, it's also interesting. My parents I don't, were people that I don't think ever really wanted to have kids and they weren't exactly um, totally cut out for it. I think they might even admit this. I mean, they, they, they were fine in the end, but especially in those years, they were a little bit unprepared in general, you know, and I was just a very, very sensitive kid who was just watching everything and just feeling that I could not express fear. So I became that typical, you know, firstborn, but times a thousand, where I was like, I have to fix everything. I have to hold, hold this down. I have to make sure they're calm, and I have to never cry, and I have to be this little adult. Um, right. That, that was a big part of my childhood. But there were things that were totally not adults about me. I mean, for instance, I didn't learn that people could actually die of natural causes until the end of elementary school, I think. It might have been 10 or 11. How did you, get, how did you stay away from that? I mean, I thought that you could get murdered, maybe, or like explode, <laughs> like in video games, or something unfortunate could happen. But I just thought old people would be old forever. They, they look like they're a thousand years old, anyways. Right. 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 Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I, I didn't quite understand. Um, I didn't understand. And I remember one time across. We were in Alhambra, California, then in our first shitty apartment. And the home, home of uh, former home of Phil Spector, right? Isn't that where he yeah, lived? Yeah, you know, I know Nicole Spector. She went to my high school as his daughter. Oh, really? Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. So exactly, we were there. But of course, you know, my main association with Alhambra of that era is the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Yeah. You remember I, that? Well, I, rem- I, you know, I remember it. But I think I remember it by way of reading about it, like after the fact, because I didn't grow oh, up right. here. But I, right. I've read about it, and uh, you know, I know people who grew up here, and it like looms large in their imagination. Like that was a really freaky period of time when that was going on. Oh, my. Yeah, he was he was around Alhambra Monterey Park too. It wasn't very far, and uh, well, I can tell you a funny story about that. I mean, that's how I, you know, ACDC. I love ACDC and a lot of music of that type and much of that came from reading accounts of Richard Ramirez playing that music when he would uh, commit some of his atrocities. Well, yeah, and just so people uh, who are listening who aren't aware, like the Night Stalker was what, a serial killer in Los Angeles in the 80s? Yes. A a, a strangler or whatever? I mean, I I almost have blocked it out now, but I think really, really violent rape murders all around old, young all sorts of targets he had, um, and uh, he wasn't caught for quite a while. But I remember, I mean, sometimes I wonder if I've made this up, but I just remember, I think in the news they would talk about like he had long nails like claws. Oh, my God. <laughs> so scary for a kid. But he was also very handsome. He had a beautiful face. Well, so was uh, so was Ted Bundy. I remember Ted Bundy being like a, da- he cut like a dashing. He kind of looked like uh, oh, Ted Danson. <laughs> yeah, I know it's true. I know. No, I mean, like all, I don't know, girls in my generation, so many of us are obsessed with serial killers. It's, it's, I often talk about this with other women. 
Well, it's that, and then there was also like the just you know don't talk to strangers, and it felt like maybe there was more. I mean, I guess the media has only gotten more sensationalized, you know, over time. But it feels like those sort of narratives were really prevalent when I was a kid. You know, oh, like yeah. the serial killer, the kidnapper, the white van, the yeah, you know, that's that sort of stuff. Like, kind of haunted me as a kid, and I, I very much remember adults in my life, like teachers and parents and whatnot, like you know, harping on that, like, don't talk to strangers. In fact, I kind of had that conversation with my daughter the other day and kind of caught myself in the middle of it. And I'm like, just instilling this kid with fear or, or am I being responsible? Like, what's the line that you walk? You know, you right. want, you want her to be like aware, but you don't want her to be like spooked about her surroundings. You know? or, or even worse, a child like me then becoming kind of obsessed with serial killers. Right. I mean, that was, I mean, Look, I'm so I'm I'm 37 now, and I and I remember the whole period where they said, oh, you know, this music, you know, Tipper Gore, but there's someone before Tipper Gore too. Was like this this music is all satanic, this rock and roll, this heavy metal, this stuff is all the music of the devil, and if you play it backwards, that stuff was always everywhere. And uh, remember, they would say that about Guns N' Roses even. Sure, Guns N' Roses was the music of the devil. Well, I became obsessed with collecting everything that they said was of the devil yeah. and i started to realize it was yeah, the best stuff out there basically uh, guns, you know guns and roses guns and roses appetite for destruction is without question the yeah. most the most powerful music experience of my adolescence like that yeah. that album for me and i think it's the same for so many of us like i was talking to a friend Absolutely. of mine uh the other day and she like i didn't know I, I met her you know just a few years ago our kids go to school together and um she walked down the aisle at her wedding to Sweet Child of Mine. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I almost thought you were going to say November Rain. Yeah. I was like, that story doesn't end well. But No, yeah. <laughs> That's, I love that song, too. But, like, Guns N' Roses, was, I don't know what it was about them, you know? And maybe it was because it was just so, uh, you know, bad or something, you know, that you, you, yeah. you're drawn to it as a kid. But it was, uh, it was big for me. So big for me, too. And it felt like it was so, you know... California, hard rock, heavy metal, especially in the Los Angeles area, it just felt like it was so perfect for the setting. And of course, you know, growing up then I was too young, but later when I would visit, also the the sort of soundtrack of strip clubs that you and you'd see them, you know, in like, you know, Motley Crue video. Oh yeah, sort of I can I could take I could, if anybody wants to come to Los Angeles, I can take you on a driving tour by every single strip club in the song "Girls, Girls, yeah. Girls." <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. I have done a similar thing once with with an uh, ex boyfriend, and I tried to impress him with them. He wasn't very charmed. Well, yeah, I mean, because I don't want to be, I don't want to be like déclassé. But like when I'm driving somebody who's in town, and I'll like pass yeah. girls, 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 I'll be like, so there was the strip club, and you know, it gets a mixed response. <laughs> I'm like, know. you know, it's in the Motley Crue song. Yeah, I, I you know. No, so, I love that stuff. That's, do you ever go to the Rainbow Room? I mean, I have, but not. I mean, not on like a, on the regular. I don't go anywhere on the regular anymore. It seems like. But um, what what I want to say though, because you mentioned this and it, it sort of resonated with me, is this notion that like in the '80s there was this period of time when Guns and like, Guns and Roses to me was like at the heart of it, where it was their rise and then their petering out or whatever you want to call it, their flame out. Which it was a very quick period of time when you look back yeah. on it, like. It, it, you know, and, and this is something that I think repeats itself in the arts frequently, where by the time you realize it's happening, it's usually over. It, 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 like they yeah. really are like comets, like these movements or these, you know, when one artist or one cluster of artists sort of embodies this new thing 
and is incredibly productive and you know pushes the ball forward or takes things in a new direction. Uh, rarely do these things sustain themselves over more than like a year or two, you know, and then, and then it bounces in a different way or the energy peters out. Like it's impossible, um, for a group to harness it for too long. And then it's also useful to remember, I think as an individual writer that, um, you know, I don't think we're designed to sustain peak creativity for really extended periods of time. Like sometimes you have that energy and then it goes and then, I think you've got to be patient because you need that period of kind of uh, the fallow period for renewal. Oh, I love that. That that really resonates with me because, you know, I just recently was talking to uh, someone about how I had gone back and I had, um, you know, in my head, my first novel came out so long ago, but it was actually, uh, you know, 2007. So it was, it was, you know, now eight years almost, but it, I, I've always dreaded going and rereading it, and I haven't reread the whole thing. Really. This is this is Suns and Other Flammable Objects? Yeah, Suns and Other Flammable Objects. And I had to give a, you know, actually for this bar job, I give a job talk, and it was one of those long readings they ask you to do, you know, for like 45 minutes. So I thought, okay, well, I'll do a little bit for my first book. I'll do something from The Last Illusion, my second novel, and then I'll do a little bit about some new things I'm working on. And... I really strangely enjoyed reading from my first novel, and I didn't think I would. Why? And part of that, well, it, it's that there was an energy to the sentences um, that I don't know I have anymore. There was a skill that that um, was me at a certain type of peak, like what you're saying. Well, I don't know I could recreate. Okay, so okay, I want to stop here because I think about this a lot, and it's especially I think it's especially clear to see in the context of music. Because, you know, you talk about Guns N' Roses, you know, just to keep like hammering away at that yeah, example. Yeah. But you talk yeah. about you talk about their rise and their eventual flame out and how quickly it happened. But it's, it's also very much connected to youth. And I think about the music that I love and I think about, you know, so many musicians in the Pantheon or whatever and the best of their music. So much of it happens when they're in their 20s and so much yeah. of it happens when they're in their 30s. And, you know, that's not to say that like Bruce Springsteen and... You know, other mu- Bob Dylan and other musicians, you know, who age can't still be interesting and make good records and whatnot. You know, I'm not saying right. that, but you, you can't, I guess, hopefully maybe the art, you know, you accrue some wisdom as you get older and, and, and then the work reflects that and does things in an interesting way um, that like youth could never replicate. But there's something about the energy of youth. There's something with the energy of youth and art that is just that irreplaceable. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, part of it is this sort of, Sometimes I talk to students about it, and I say you have to harness this wildness that you have. You know that sort of fuck it energy that you see in people that are in their 20s? Right. Sometimes even their teens. I say, you know, 18 to 22, those are interesting years. My undergraduates, and I, that sort of wildness, whether it just want to, they kind of want to jump out of their bodies. And you only get glimpses of this as a teacher, you know. You don't get to see it so much in the sterile environment of the classroom. But I can imagine it, and I can see it in some of their exercises. And I often tell them to really bottle that and preserve that in a way and, and bring that to the page if you can um, because there's, there's something so beautiful about the rawness of young people. It's very tragic when you meet a young person and they're overly professional right. or sort of corporate or too polished. I find that so sad. Well, so I think, I was, yeah, I think this is... I was, yeah, I was, I was just going to interrupt because I want to say, like, there's something I've found, like, in, in watching young writers, 
you know, out there. I, I see a lot of it online, as most of us do, and then you see it in the classroom. Yeah. Um, I taught for a while at, at Santa Monica College and would see this in my classroom as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things that strikes me along the lines of sadness, <laughs> just to take things in a dark direction, is the... Uh, <laughs> Is is that I find, and I, I guess maybe the internet is somewhat to blame and social media because we're doing this, uh, we're all engaged in this act of self-presentation online in a social context day in and day out. And I think right. younger younger people and, you know, people who are young and in their early 20s today, like this is what they grew up in. And I feel what it, like what it does sometimes is that I find like the polish on some of these presentations to be unnerving because uh, it's like they've been inundated with the language of marketing and advertising their whole lives, just like all of us have. And then suddenly you get into like a social media context and, you know, that's like a a fish in water for them. And then they're they're just like, yeah, this is natural. And they're, they're constantly engaged in like this online presentation. And, you know, maybe I'm, I'm dispirited about it because it bums me out and feels like a constant commercial or maybe I'm dispirited about it because, like, they're much more like adept at it than I am. Because, like, I didn't. No, you're, Do you know you're what I'm absolutely saying? right. No, it's very sad. It's 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 because I think one thing that happens when you get I, I used to just find it very unnerving when I was younger, but now I know what they're saying that they're getting their lines from MFAs, they're getting their lines from marketing departments from media training we know where it's coming from and that's not a real person that's that's what the robot world is telling them to project it's depressing well Uh, well it's also like people young people are like they're like ready to be famous before they're ready to be published novelists like they're good at it's like they're good at being famous before they're good at writing a lot of the time you know (laughs) Like they could give a they could give a killer interview, but like they couldn't write a novel to save their lives, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard. I mean, part of it is also you got to sit still and you got to go home and do the work. I mean, I I often poke fun at people who take pictures of the spines of books and they say, "This is my what do they call it? The TBR pile, right?" Right on my nightstand. Yeah, everyone takes photos. Someone told me they call them selfies. Is that what a selfie is? <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know. So awful. But the, the thing is, they think, uh, oh, look at all these books I've read. But there's no way you're reading all these books. I, I can't see how because I see you all day in and out, I mean, online. And part of the thing with reading is you can't do it while you're texting with your other hand. You you're have right. to actually shut the world out and, like, go into that quiet space. And, and same with writing. I mean... I, I really, I think it's great that, you know, people promote books and want to be seen with book signs and all that stuff. That's great. But, um, no, but ultimately, it, yeah. I think people actually have to read them, too. Well, yeah, no, but you're, you're saying, like, and, and, like, just to be fair, too, because I don't want to sound too, like, ageist or whatever, where it's all about age. Because I think people my age or older can be just as guilty of this as people sure. who are younger. But. Um, like it comes back down to advertising. Like it's, it's like, Oh, I can present myself as like the most literate, you know, scholarly bookish person in the world, you know? And, and then in my actual day to day life, like I'm playing candy crush and like tweeting all day and I'm not really, I'm not really engaged in the hard work of being a writer, which involves like really focused and, uh, concentrated reading, you know? Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I, you know, started as a journalist too. And, uh, and I'm an essayist as well, so I definitely part of my time is spent nonfiction. But it's it's so funny because I, I I sort of lovingly call some people oh the Wikipedia writers, you know, and the hot take 
really encourages Wikipedia writing, oh basically, where they quickly overnight go and they read up all the stuff they can find online, and then you get this canned opinion that's come from, you know, just some very quick, rapid research well, come okay. together. I want to tell I got to stop you again because you're saying things that really, like, you know, like push my buttons, but the hot take culture, yeah. I call it ambulance chasing. Yeah. Uh, because it's like, oh, something happens in the news and someone says something stupid or does something offensive. And then it's like I can just it's like the bell goes off and it's like, OK, go like everyone's racing to get their essay up on like Slate or whatever as fast as possible yeah. to get the clicks and redirect all of the fury like in a, in a way that somehow aggrandizes them like they want that. They want those eyeballs. And I, I mean, I, I guess that's journalism. I mean, journalists have always, you know, you're trying to get the story first. Right. But right. but it's the what is it about that that bo- why does that bother me so much? Yeah, I think it's a different pulse. I mean, here I do have to sound ageist a little bit here. I think millennials, and so I, I love it. I love them in many ways. But I do think, you know, we're that. I'm I'm certainly the end of Gen X. How old are you, Brad? I'm 39. Okay, so we're we're Gen X, and so which, which, by the way, that as a generation, we're like completely like passed over. No one ever talks about Gen X. It's always like baby boomers or the millennials. <laughs> it's like we're a non-entity. Because we're the best. Yeah. That's why they don't dare. We're quiet. But, but this, well, also because we're sort of non-competitive too. I mean, that was always the tragedy of Gen X in a way. The sort of slacker image. In some ways, we don't like to compete as much. The boomers and the millennials love a good competition. But the thing I find with the millennials, it comes mostly out of anxiety. So I think they rule the Internet right now. Certainly they rule social media, let's say. Yeah. And their pulse is so rapid out of anxiety. They are the most anxious people I've ever – and I'm someone who's quite prone to anxiety, so but I can very easily get absorbed in it. But so much of the hot take culture isn't even like the old school journalism culture about like, okay, let's get great stuff out there. Let's be the first to report it. I just think they're just – they're like, like, like little birds just fluttering around and hitting the, you know, glass by accident and dropping, <laughs> and it's, it's just chaos in some ways. So I'm always trying to say, slow down, slow down. You have to get off the computer. Like you have yeah. to get off the phone, and you have yeah. to um, quit distracting yourself. Like to me, it comes down to suffering and like not understanding how to properly take care of it. It's like, you know, using the internet and television and even books, you know what I'm saying? Like using media, using drugs, using food, using whatever, just to try to cover up that, that, that sort of like knot in your chest of like, I don't feel good. I'm nervous. I'm going to die. What's happening. And then, you know, you just dive back into Twitter or dive back into Facebook or read some story about some controversy and numb yourself to it all. And the, the irony, the sad irony is that when you do that, you actually exacerbate the suffering and make it worse over time rather than actually addressing it, you know. Right, right. Well, it's funny. I think sometimes we now sort of short circuit a bit. We hear, hear so many things. You know, remember, everyone loves kale. Then, then do you remember the New York Times <laughs> uh, piece that said kale is actually giving people thyroid problems because uh, they're eating too much kale? Right. So, so, I mean, in some ways you short circuit, all this stuff cancels each other out. And they're all, they all have so much to do with sort of cultural, like, anxiety. And so now I personally don't care about any of this stuff. I eat whatever I want. I smoke a little bit. I drink. I do, you know... I don't pay attention. I don't get obsessed about, oh, am I getting the right amount of sleep? I feel that I short-circuited at some point. I cared too much, 
I inherited a lot of that millennial, and I'm close close enough to the millennials that you know I feel like a double agent a little bit. Right. So me, I, me I too. Got a, me too, in a way. Like I'm online. I have millennial buddies, and like I'm constantly talking to them, and like there's a part of me. It's it's sort of anthropological. Like I'm deeply curious, and like um, yeah. as a parent too. Like I never want to be one of those people who looks to youth without like um, respect and like interest in like understanding. You know, I feel like there's this. Yeah. There's nothing worse to me. There's nothing lamer to me than somebody who's like, oh, there's no good music or there's no good art anymore. Oh. Like, it was only good back when I was 20. And that sort of attitude, that sort of nostalgic pose really bums me out. I agree. It's, it's well, I mean, there, there's some very good things about them. And I, and I like to say that there's the older millennials and the younger millennials. And one of my friends calls them post millennials. I especially like these post millennials. Um, you know, the. the the really like early 20s teens some of them are so creative and they're so funny too I right mean, i have never been funnier i don't know it seems that just the sort of one of the reasons i still stay addicted to twitter one is you know the current event news stuff that i can't get away from sure but the other thing is um I just, I, I, I truly do love some of the stupid jokes i mean yeah. I, I daily because of Twitter all the time, you know, and I, I should really be crying every day given the other stuff. But I there's so much um, joke. Twitter is one of the best Twitters. Yeah, no, I, Twitter's my Twitter is my social media. It's the only one I use. Uh, and uh, it's I think it's very writerly. There's something about it. Uh, you know, I've had this conversation on this show with multiple writers. I think that's where writers most naturally fit in the social media landscape, though. I think people who are really adept at it like they're all over the map but I, I don't know how they do it i don't know how people manage like you know twitter facebook instagram pinterest right. like when you're doing all that and, and you're and you're writing books like you're at a level that like i i aspire to i think well facebook <laughs> has gotten so useless uh, it's, so, it's, such it's a... almost like a soothing you know how it's almost like going to the shopping mall these days you know when you're just it's just so archaic in a way but it's almost soothing <laughs> And it's banalness. I haven't been so, on. I haven't been on in like two, three years. Like I, oh, it, I can't do it. Horrible. Yeah. It's horrible. But it's it's just a place for moms and grandmas. So right. Something. I wonder if it's going to have some sort of retro charm to people. But um, the, you know, I don't know. But Instagram, I I kind of like because you don't get any of those ranty things, and it's sort of innocuous. And right. It's like here's it's here's here's my lunch. Here's my kid. <laughs> Here's my here's my feet on the beach. Yes. <laughs> if I see if I see one more feet on the beach like photo, I'm gonna throw my computer across the room. Yeah, I don't know why people like this so much. That's that's a classic, isn't it? Yeah. Someone told me on online dating sites, uh, women are always putting photos of themselves doing yoga on the beach. Yeah, no, you know what the other thing is? Because I had a buddy in town not too long ago who was like deep into Tinder and like Tinder. Mm -hmm. Tinder is like post my like I my wife and I were together well before Twitter or Tinder came out so I've never done the dating apps oh, and wow. my buddy was like showing me Tinder and he's like watch he's like uh, I guarantee you like at least six out of ten of the next girls you know ten girls that I swipe are gonna have pictures of themselves like crossing the finish line at a triathlon with like a number on their chest <laughs> and I shit you not he was right it's like That's six, uh, yeah, lots, lots of like triathlon competition pictures with like a number on the chest, you know, like at the oh Boston. Oh my god! Yeah. 
that's like men wearing like suits in and those things, you know, thinking <laughs> right. like, Oh, I heard women like men in suits. <laughs> oh, I heard men like women who run. You know? Yes. It's so sad. It but is. there's also something sweet about it too, right? When human beings are so kind of fragile and their patheticness it's it's kind of endearing. Well, yeah, and it's like, you know, people want to connect, and it's, again, it comes back to, like, the language of advertising. Like, what do people want? How am I going to make the connection? How, do, how am I going to win this? How do, how do you achieve victory? <laughs> Don't you love now how the brands sound like they, they're trying really hard to sound human? I mean, obviously, we know there's human beings behind brands, but the, I love brand Twitter, too, these days. Yeah. Because, I mean, we're going to miss these days. I always think in the future one day, you know, the Internet will become even more and more sanitized. And we'll look at this as the old Wild West days of Twitter, and, or social media, rather, and we'll miss all those kind of grotesque comment sections and, like, Slate and Salon articles or even the wonkiness of the current CNN.com and all that. Like, we're going to miss these days. Yeah. I think, I think there's something so fun about all the... Um, fuck-ups and weirdnesses of the internet yeah i mean yeah exactly for all the bitching you can do about it there is something extraordinary about it and something extraordinary extraordinary about having been able to kind of witness its birth i mean yeah. uh to see this thing grow from like you know what was it like america online and prodigy yes. and dial up america online and prodigy absolutely those were in 1994 mm-hmm. i had uh, you know i was prodigy aol and i went on my first the chat rooms and they weren't it's funny you would think the first instinct with chat rooms would have been the sexual one that we associate with it but I swear to God my memory of that 1994 and chat rooms was, it was all divided by like nerdy things like beat writers rock and roll <laughs> knitting you know it was just like hobbies and people just going there and talking about things they liked huh. um, it was so great in a way that's why I can't really quit the internet see I've, I've been so raised on it well, yeah, no, I don't want to quit it. I just want to get better at having discipline with it. Like, that's yeah. it. It's not, it's not, you know, the internet is an evil. Social media is an evil. It's just how we use them. And it's like, unfortunately, it's like for people of my disposition, it's very easy to get sucked in and to like lose like an entire day doing nothing. Same here. I got to stop doing that. I've wasted too many hours of my life already. So. Oh, no. I know. I know. And you know that Andrew Sullivan note really, uh, there was a lot in there that I that resonated. Yeah, I'm gonna miss that blog. I mean, I I haven't. I should. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because like that was like so part of my daily diet online, and like it made the internet feel like healthier in a way. Like I was like, okay, I'm online, but yeah. I'm reading this, and like like they're curating the internet for me, and I'm not like bouncing right. around to like trashy like gossip sites and like you know whatever right. the, whatever the hell, and like you know actually thinking. Like there's an actual thought project happening, and. You know, I can understand, though, how exhausting and, like, soul-depleting that must have been for the people doing it, especially for that long. So I don't begrudge them wanting to quit, but I am going to miss it because it's like, now where do I go? You know? I know. I, that's, that's always the question. Someone will send me a link on something, and I'll be like, I have to figure out what, who are the people involved? What is this? Yeah. Is, this is this on the, you know, yeah, I, there's so much I don't know that keeps popping up, but... I'm trying to see that as something exciting, though, like you say, the big, the big issue is the more I try to see it as something exciting, then discipline becomes essential because, yes. uh, you know, writers are curious and uh, one hopes and they want, you know, certain adventures. I can't really have the adventures I, I really want anymore. Why? What, but, kind, of, what uh, kind of adventures do you want? 
Well, I mean, I, I, I guess I do have them. I love driving cross-country a lot and just stopping by sort of unplanned and strange cities across America. I've done that quite a few times. Um, and I've, uh, I've never been, you know, shy about that stuff. Uh, I've, I've just enjoyed... You travel a lot, like internationally? I, I don't enjoy international travel, though I'm in a period right now of doing quite a bit of it because I just got back from uh, London last month and I'm about to go on an Australian, you know, book tour. I guess there, there's a bunch of festivals uh, that I'm doing over there uh, for two weeks, starting next week. So I'm, I'm not a great international traveler, but I really, really enjoy traveling within the U.S. But I don't know if that's just, the, again, the immigrant in me. <laughs> You're like I'm, sta- I'm staying. In, I'm staying in America. Like- <laughs> right. <laughs> but I really find so many regions of America to be extraordinary and exciting. And um, like where? Like what's what's your favorite pocket? I mean, if you've done all this travel around the states, like yeah. give us some. Like what, where should we go? Well, what I like to do is do the southern route in uh, the winter. Actually, you know, I don't love the summer humidity, but and I, I used to have an '89 Crown Vic. That was my favorite car. I loved driving that around. Um, I've had some good Subarus since, too. I kind of have to have a good vehicle. I've driven 10 ski trucks cross-country a couple times by myself, too. Um, that was kind of fun. So part of it is just the, the vehicle business. But, okay, so the route I would like to, that I usually like to do is I go down south, and you, I like to stop in Atlanta, and then I love Atlanta. And then I also really love New Orleans, of course. Sure. And then, you know... I sure Austin and Marfa and Texas are great, but I just love in general the landscape in Texas. I think West Texas in particular is so extraordinarily beautiful. Yeah, I got to do that. It's, it's amazing. And then you go down, you know, Sonoran Desert and through, through Arizona can be very beautiful. I really love Tucson. And then, you know, you crawl your way back up, but, you know, because usually I'm going to, to LA to see my family, but. Some other states I really love. I've lived in northern New Mexico a few times, uh, mainly Santa Fe. But I, so I love that whole region. New Mexico is one of my favorite states. But I also really love parts of Wyoming. Uh-huh. And Montana, I just went for the first time, uh, God, two summers ago. And I absolutely fell in love with Montana. Yeah, it's beautiful. Where'd you go? <sighs> I went to Big Sky and West Yellowstone and Missoula and Bozeman. I kind of went all over right. for a piece I'm working on, and it was uh, just incredible. I mean, I love when the pieces take you places. Well, and yeah. That's why I like you know, still doing some investigative journalism and some feature journalism. It, I'm much more suited temperamentally for that life than the life of the, you know, the stereotypical writer that hides in their tiny office and, you know, writes every day and, and tries to write about the world, but at the same time shuts out the world. Right. But yeah. I, I like to be in it. I'm, I'm an extrovert, really, and I like to engage with the outside world as much as possible. So how did you wind up in New York? And like, I mean, because New York, the, the, the new book really, you know, uh, a lot of it is about the city. The city is a character in the book, and 9-11 is a big factor in the book. Uh, were you in New York City for 9-11? Yeah, I was. Um, I had just been a year out of... So I went to undergrad at Sarah Lawrence, and then, you know, that was still... We caught the end of, 
you know, that era where you could still get a job the weekend after you right. graduated. <laughs> so I was working at Spin Magazine, uh, where I'd been an intern. I'd done a lot of music magazines. I also did Reagan Publishing. I was an intern at Reagan Bikini and Sweater, and I worked at Sound Voice. I had all these kind of great internships. So I knew that I would have um, some leads in sort of New York media. And so I stayed, and I, and I continued to work in the magazine. And then when I was, so by the time it got to be 9-11, I was 23, and I had just sort of recently quit my spin job because I, I laughed when I think about this. I thought, oh, no problem. I could get another job immediately, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. and, and I was unemployed for a year and a half after that. But I, I was constantly interviewing at different Condé Nast magazines. They were calling me in all the time. I was not stressed. And the morning of 9-11, I was actually going to go to a job fair. And I was living with my ex-boyfriend, who's, you know, John Caramonica. He's a New York Times pop critic now, and we're still very good friends. We lived in an apartment on Mercer Street, and it was amazing. You had a, one of the windows with, like, almost a whole wall, and you had a perfect, it was the 26th floor, and you had a view all the way downtown. Um, so we were on Mercer and Waverly, we weren't so far, um, but you could, you had a perfect view of the world trade. Ugh. And so that was, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember, uh, like everyone, I remember every detail of that day very vividly. And, uh, then... But it took you a while to write about it? It didn't take me that long. I mean, it took me, well, it, you know, I, I immediately... You know, I, 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 I actually kept the diary then, and I think I even thought of it as a journal or diary, yeah. I mean, I wrote down all that stuff immediately, and I knew this was going to be my big topic, and then I quickly uh, applied to graduate school. I just thought, what am I going to do? I never really wanted to go to MFA, and Johns Hopkins had a one-year MA, and I thought, fine, I'll do that. I just needed to get out of New York. I knew the world was going to change in some very terrifying way, and I thought, academia would be a good bubble to be in for a little bit what about and uh, like i mean this is a little bit delicate but i want to ask you know like post 9 11 um you're you're uh, a first generation american of middle eastern descent like did that fuck with your head at all like did you feel oh yeah did you feel it you know like was there a shift in the way that you felt people perceived you or that you thought they perceived you oh sure because i remember i mean my i, I still had a green card that was expiring that month or the next month. It was, it was wild. I was supposed to get it. But at the same time, my mom had finally tried to push through her citizenship and mine. My brother was born in the U.S., and my dad refuses still to become an American citizen. So it was uh, November of 2001, I became an American citizen, sort of expedited by my mother's lawyers. <laughs> wow. I had this horrible feeling about it because I thought, you know, that night when you're watching the news and they were talking about Osama bin Laden and all the stuff I didn't really know about, actually. I thought, oh, my God, I kept remembering the shopping mall I grew up by, the Santa Anita Fashion Park in Arcadia, and how that was a Japanese internment camp. Wow. And I, I would always think about that when I would go shopping there as a teenager, and I thought, oh, my God, there's going to be internment camps. Yeah. Or or something. I just... I was in, that was one of my first reactions, and then... By the way, that's such a dark, like a dark uh, part of American history that gets yeah. gets kind of glossed over more than it should, especially because it happened under Franklin Roosevelt, you know, who's sort of uh, beloved and, 
right. you know, considered this great leader. But uh, the more that you learn about presidential history, you realize that like all presidents have miserable marks on their resume, and you know, yeah. some are bigger than others, but. You no, just, there's no such thing as a great leader who's like flawless and, you know, spiritually pure. Like, I think it's impossible to be in a position of leadership like that and not wind up doing or saying horrible things, but that's particularly bad. No, I think you're absolutely right. Yes, I, always, I often think about this. I mean, that, that was just, how could that have happened? Yeah. You know, I don't think there's even a plaque at the Santa Anita Fashion Park. I mean, maybe they just find it too grim to put that there. I don't know. But it wasn't even taught to us when we were in high school. I mean, no. I had to learn that on my own. Well, no, I had a, one of my ex-girlfriends. Her her dad was a kid in one of those uh, camps in California. Oh, so, God. you know, incredible. It was nuts. Yeah, incredible. I mean, and so something like this happens, and I think we're still sort of, we're def- I believe we're still trapped in post nine eleven post nine eleven. Era never ends. You uh, know? I hope some of the, but I hope some of the initial, like pants wetting and like the psychosis. Like I think psychosis is not an inaccurate word to describe the, what the collective mindset of the country went into after that. Like it was, uh, sure. you know, there's there's something very dangerous about collective fear. You know, right? Fear, Don't fear. you think we're still in that? I mean, we're still paying the price for that. I mean, think about it's like ISIS was created so so incredibly in the imagination of George W. Bush. It's like exactly what... It's like we made it happen almost. Yeah. You know, I don't know. It's wild. No, it's exactly a, how they imagined it. Right. It's like, it's like, okay, yeah. I mean, this is the thing. Like, this is... Like, I, I think intellectually, like, if you actually debated it with me, you could convince me that pacifism is not, like, the answer to every single instance of injustice or horror on the face of the earth. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that's probably true. But like in terms of my personal politics, like I've decided that I'm a pacifist and that's just where I'm going to plant my flag. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Because I don't see, I mean, yeah, maybe there's an instance where like, like the the best analogy I've ever heard is that like, if you're on a ship and the the, the ship captain is a psych, you know, psychopath and he's going to like run the ship aground or into an iceberg and kill everybody on board. And you have an opportunity to stop him, and you have a gun in your hand. You shoot the guy, and you save everybody. And like, right. do you know what I'm saying? Like, you can't like yeah. re- you can't reason with the guy. So like, I get right. that there are like moments in life when that is you know that sort of thing unfortunately has to happen. But look what it be you know look what it begets you know yeah. when you start especially when you when you you know you lash out and you attack Iraq which had nothing to do with 9/11 and right. you're torturing people and you're just acting like a psycho and you're acting like yeah. uh, you know like there's a like, there's a reason why I think I love the show Homeland so much. Like, I think I love its conceit that it's about this bipolar, um, you know, CIA operative in, in the wake of 9-11. And I think bipolar, you know, that, right. me- that metaphor, um, you know, makes some sense to, like, the way the country um, has felt. I don't know. Maybe that's inaccurate. But do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's been very troubling. I mean, uh, it's it's just endlessly troubling i mean i see every few years i feel a new wave of islamophobia and you know i identify as culturally muslim because all my relatives they're all muslim of course my parents happen to be fairly atheistic and um but it was you know all around us it was everywhere but so i 
I definitely feel a very strong kinship with, with Muslims and, and obviously with Middle Easterners of all sorts. I mean, even though it, even that gives me a little bit of pause because, uh, you know, <laughs> this, this feeling of pan-Middle pan Eastern identity seems to me such an invention of the post-9-11 era. I mean, Middle Eastern countries all hate each other. <laughs> but this feeling of solidarity that we've been pushed into comes out of, you know, from racism and xenophobia all over the world. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, in, in like 2011 or so, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, and I've been doing quite a few by the, at that point, and that was called My Nine Years as a Middle Eastern American. It was just really about me having a little bit of a breakdown as a New Yorker because that, the whole discussion about what they what they called the Islamic Center Mosque was just driving me nuts. What, that was the one downtown that they didn't want to build or whatever? Yeah, and, and in that same season, you know, a Muslim cab driver was stabbed by this young white guy, and it was just, it was, it was really feeling horrible, and now I, I feel it again. I mean, maybe it's been there the whole time, and maybe it comes up, you know, especially after Charlie Hebdo and all that. Right. I mean, that the blood wasn't even dry, and you saw the kill all Muslims hashtag on social media. Right. I mean, the blood wasn't even dry. It was wild. Um, so I'm back to a very, very, you know, feeling very uncomfortable, and I, I hear anti-Muslim, anti-Middle Eastern sentiment just everywhere these days. It seems so acceptable. Well, see, but see, okay, so here's where I'm at, because, like, I, I hear you completely, but there is a part of me that, like, is sort of like, you know, religion... Is it like religion and what it can do, um, right. especially to people who are of unstable mind, you know, or aren't feeling good? <laughs> um, right. it, it can be a big part of the problem. And I don't care what and what religion it is. And I think Obama was saying just as much at the prayer breakfast, which the whole the whole dust up over that seems absurd to me and like infantile. Um, but just well, the- I also think there's a there's a story there about young men. I mean, I, I think it has a little bit to do with that. I mean, delusional young men will, will be intoxicated by pretty much anything, yeah, well, you know? 88 virgins. Mentally unstable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, until we live in a world where the females are truly the main terrorists, then I can look at other factors. But for me, this seems there's perhaps a testosterone issue. Well, but there's that, but there's also there's sexual repression. I mean, se- like right. in religion, and, and there's sexual repression in Christianity. And, like, sexual repression... Um, you know, that's like like wrapped up in uh, dogma doesn't lead to good things, doesn't lead yeah. to healthy human beings. Like I'm not I'm not saying it always leads to like uh, psychotic violence, but um, right. it, it certainly leads to like anguish and like weird behavior yeah. and like n- like not a few like really uncomfortable wedding nights. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, exactly. like people need to get laid and like just like relax a yeah. little bit. Um, you know, oh, it's so true. Yeah. Well, I always wonder, like, even with these religions, I, mean, I, I guess I just can't even believe that there are people that abide by it. I just think uh, everybody must have premarital sex, but that must not be true. Well, I just I I'm a like I'm a fan of Sam Harris. I wish I could paraphrase him better, but like he makes a very convincing case to me for why. Um, religion is, you know, a big part of the problem. And I think it's like, oh God, I'm going to fuck this up when I try to talk about it. But it's like when you, when you have things couched in terms of the ultimate, you know, like ultimate um, damnation or ultimate ascent into the heavens, uh, you know, when you're viewing the world through that prism, it can justify some really fucked up behavior because, 
you know, that you, you're doing it for God or you're doing it for heaven or the people who aren't doing what you want them to do are going to, you know, they're damned and that right. means they're, they're subhuman and, you know, it, it becomes be like a, marital sex for me. I don't even believe that. I guess I'm so, so in the extreme of atheism that I can't even believe there are people that believe this. I guess, you know, that, that's, I'm, I always think at the end of the day, religious people must whisper to each other, like, okay, we know this isn't true, but yeah, well, like there's not, a, there was a funny bit like back in the day with John Stewart when he was doing stand up where he was like the Pope, he's the most beloved guy in the world that nobody agrees with, you know, like, it's like, you know, like, and I grew up Catholic. So I know that like, you know, it's like, don't have sex before you're married. And everyone's like, God, he's such a great guy. He's a great man. Whatever you say, dude, you know, don't use, don't use birth control. Don't have abortions. It's a, you know, so, That's you know, true. so yeah. it's a, it's a messed up, it's a messed up world, uh, to say the least. And I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't think there's one answer, but I certainly think that, um, you know, if the answer is not going to be found online, <laughs> I think we've arrived at that. And, um, like just as like a, a, you know, very clumsy segue, like speaking of online, I can't let you go. I can't let the hour pass up without talking about, um, you know, the big online fiasco of last fall in which you were a major player. Um, I would be remiss if I did not ask you about this because it was a weird period in, I mean, speaking of everybody being online uh, and particularly writers, you know, in this context, uh, you know, it, it, there was this dark period of like a month where there was nothing but literary scandal on my computer screen. And there was like, I don't know what it was. It felt like a, a thing, you know, it felt like this sudden moment like you know all these things that sort of flowered at once and you know just to kind of summarize and forgive me if i get any of the details wrong um you know you were the target of abuse by ed champion the uh, infamous literary blogger i guess what you had deleted one of his facebook comments this gets silly to even talk about because it's, <laughs> right. it's so ridiculous but he had made a bad comment about the editor of slate magazine on your facebook wall correct mm -hmm. yeah. and then you deleted it Right. And then he went off on you and threatened to, um, what, expose uh, nude photographs of you or, or the name of a guy who had taken... Yeah, but it, it, that's the funny thing. I think people sometimes accidentally think that Ed had nude photos of me, and <laughs> I can guarantee everybody on Earth that Ed does not have nude photos on me. But he happened to know about something else that could have been a scandal with me and involved another writer who had taken photos of me without my permission and... Oh. Um, he wanted to expose that. I guess, you know, his, his final tweets weren't even really about me. They were like, fuck all of publishing. So he thought, like, he'd be taking me down, Slate, this other writer. You know, he just, it was just like a drive-by. I'm just going to take everyone down. He was, it was, it was already... like, it's like terrorism. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's not a, it's not a dissimilar mindset. It's completely fatal yeah. fatalistic and, like, suicidal and really sad, you know, really yeah. sad. So what, like, but for you, like your experience of that, cause like that had to be traumatic and like very oh, yeah. stressful and consuming for you. Oh yeah. It was really, you know, it just, it happened only a few hours after I'd had one of the best experiences of my life, which was, uh, I had had a, a, a few hours that I was on the phone with Catherine Dunn, who's one of my literary heroes. And she had just read The Last Illusion and she loved it. And we were doing a joint conversation about her books for Slice Magazine, which will come out soon. So I was on cloud nine. I was having the best day. And Edward, all week, you know, I'd gotten some nasty messages, but it just came out of nowhere for me. And he, he was someone that in the summer when he had even had this horrible outburst, 
I had felt bad for, even though I'd never written What, the Emily, the Emily Gould outburst? Yeah. The, the, one that perce- the one that preceded yours. So you, yes. were you friends with him before then, or did you, like, get in touch with him after that happened? I, I, I never saw him after that happened, and we had only barely exchanged emails. But uh, he was someone who had interviewed me a couple times, and I found very bright. He was certainly eccentric, but I didn't know, you know... What's the standard in the literary world? There's so many crazy people I know, and who knows what they're like, you know, if you really get very close to them. But I, I was never that close to him. But Well, um, and, you know, in, in his defense, like, one thing about Ed is that, like, you can't say he doesn't love books, and he read... Right. I mean, like, I was always... I mean, you're talking to somebody who does a podcast um, interviewing authors, which is what he was doing. Right. But, like, the level of intensity with which he would read the work and engage the oh, work yeah. with the author, you know, that's impressive. And, like, you know, there's some merit to that. I mean, the guy loves books. It's just, I think, you know, clearly um, felt... I don't know. Was nurs- nursing some dark feelings about his failure to publish and his, right. you know, his I guess the lack of reciprocity as he saw it from the publishing yeah, he, community. Yeah, he took a lot of female authors and writers of color very seriously and did was always somewhat effortlessly um, did that. So that was he, that was the thing too. One can't forget that. But this is why this this case I think interested people because it wasn't just like you know. Just purely black and white. Um, well, and he and to be you know to for for anybody who who like is you know born on Mars and hasn't heard of this like in the literary community like this is something he had done in in whatever fashion to a lot of people in publishing. Um, he was sort of known for attacking people and you know coming after people who he felt had violated the code as he saw it or had you know somehow offended him. So interestingly, I didn't know so much of it. And the thing is, you know, we're all in our little corners, even in the publishing world in New York, and we don't know a lot of it, even when we're, you know, somewhat close to to people. I mean, there are things that people told me about my ex-boyfriend when I was dating him, and he was a writer, and and I would have never known on my own, because I hadn't had interactions with these other people. What do you mean? Like, Like bad things? Yeah, very, very bad things. You know, I've, I've, I've dated writers before, and I've had other writers warn me about those writers, you know. <laughs> um, that, that happens. Never, you know, date, and, never date a writer. <laughs> Come on. You no, know, that's, that's it's true, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. It's hard because also people who are outside of our field then sometimes don't understand, like, why we live the way we do. So right that whole issue, too. So I have this theory, though. I have this theory that, like, visual artists and writers... Um, are often like a good match. Just oh, be- really? Yeah, just because writers who are visual, like a lot of times, like, and maybe musicians are to a degree similar, like they can't necessarily always articulate why they do what they do. It's a more like intuitive thing. And then like writers mm-hmm. are obviously hyperverbal and that's their, oh, yeah. their thing. Maybe there's like a nice, like healthy symbiosis there. Whereas like, I can't imagine being married to somebody who also does this. And like, all we right. do is talk about it. Like, uh, I'm so glad I can turn to my wife and she doesn't have, give a shit like about any of this. You know, like, what uh, does she do? She works in entertainment, you know. Oh, okay. So she has like a job, and you know, I mean, it's not like she doesn't like books, but she's just not neck deep in it, you know. Right. Well, I I'll often dated graphic designers, and they were a nice match. It's true. It's nice if they're creative, but they do something different. So I'm yeah. trying to think. Yeah. I mean, gosh, who knows? You suddenly. You, you're like nearly 40 and you feel like you've dated the entire earth <laughs> and just like too much information again short-circuited i have no clue dated older younger who knows but 
the blessing is, I guess, when you're just so busy that uh, you don't even get to feel the loneliness right. um, <laughs> that right. you must be experiencing. <laughs> there's, always, there's always Twitter. That's true. <laughs> so uh, one more thing on the Ed Champion thing. Was there any resolution to this? Like, I haven't heard a, a word about him since then. Like, have you heard anything about his condition? Um, gosh, I mean, I, I don't know what I can... I've heard bits and pieces, and, and I know he's back on Twitter, so... I really don't know anything. I'm really not in touch with um, his world. I think people have kind of tried to protect me from that, too, to some degree. Um, but, it, it, you know, it's been... I just was so surprised by how many people knew about it because I would go to holiday parties and people would come up to me and immediately say, I'm sorry, and I would forget for a second what they were so sorry about. <laughs> and then and then I'd be like, oh, yeah. Uh, but but, but I, then, you know, there's been so many articles about women and cyber harassment, and, you know, I, I immediately got very interested in the Gamergate situation, sure. I partially because of my own experience, but, you know, my case was included in that, I think, for, for pretty interesting reasons. I mean, I I'd never got, I never reported him to Twitter. I never got, I was so stunned that night and so freaked out. It was a bunch of wonderful women feminist Twitter, you might call them. Yeah, don't fuck, with, don't fuck with feminist Twitter. They will not fuck with feminist Twitter. No. They're incredible. And they had him, um, you know, banned from Twitter for, for quite a while. I mean, I don't know what's happening when he's gone, but, but they took all the action. That's one of the, there's not many cases of that with Twitter where there's a separate party who acts. Um, and so I really, you know, I've always been kind of girl power, but I really felt excited about that angle and um and also really proud of some of the the player the females in the gamergate crisis though i, I my heart still breaks when i see them talk about you know basically battling these horrible men all the time and feeling that their lives are in danger um, it, it hasn't stopped the media stopped being interested in that it, but it's it still continues um so i think the, the larger issues here very much interest me. Um, my case, it was it was rough, and it still it was unfortunate that I had to be you know in touch with detectives and the, you know somehow you know police and harassment and all that stuff got involved, and it wasn't fun. But um, I, I've always you know had a lot of great friends, and I and I was very much supported, and I and I was really touched by the literary community. You know, so often we think. Oh, everyone's so snarky, and everybody doesn't care for each other really. And and uh, people were wonderful. So that was, a, you know, it was it was a it was a good thing. I also have been prepared. Pre I don't want to say prepared for this. I've, I've had a series of serious incidences with cyber harassers and stalkers. So it it happened to someone who kind of could deal with it because unfortunately I've gone through it so many times. Um, so you had training. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, I, I have a very, I, I've written about this a little bit too, but me and a few other writers share a pretty horrific female, um, cyber stalker. And, uh, she's, she's a much more serious issue for us sometimes. Ugh. Well, yes. Yeah, yeah. No fun at all. And, uh, I'm just glad that hope, you know, hopefully things have calmed down and you're able to, you know, go through your day without having to think about it too much. And, 
Uh, it's just been, I don't know, it's been such fun talking with you. I could keep going, but I feel no, like uh, I need to let you go. <laughs> well, it, no, it's wonderful. Thank you so much. I mean, this, I love that you speak to authors so properly, and we get to you ask us such fun and interesting questions. Well, congrats on the books and the success. Good luck in Australia and uh, with whatever comes next. Thank you so much, Rob. All right, guys, there you have it. That's Pora Chista Kakpura. Go get her novel. It's called The Last Illusion. It's out there now from uh, Bloomsbury. Great talk with her. And uh, check her out online, porachistakakpur.com. She's on Twitter, where her handle is at pkakpur. I believe that's correct. Track her down on Twitter. Track her down on Facebook. Track her down on Instagram. See what she has to say. Read her book. Put down your phone and read her book. Read her book on your phone. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to sign up for premium. Other people premium. Get access to everything in your pocket wherever you go. Listen online, listen offline. 340-something episodes. You'll never be bored. Or you'll always be bored. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, fatherhood. It's going to be intense, man. You forget. I sort of forget everything, but I just know those first five months are intense. I'm not sleeping, changing diapers, all that again, all of it again. I'm going back in willingly. Love kids, man. I have that thing. And it's a boy. I feel a little bit more pressure to be a man. Got to show this kid how to be a man. Show this kid how to podcast. <laughs> this is how you podcast in your garage, son. This is how you do it. So you take uh, life by the horns. Can you take life by the horns? Please remember that Wagner was not a good piano player and that Cezanne died at 67 after being caught in a sudden downpour while painting a landscape. That's it. I'm all done. Thanks to Pora Chista Kakpur. Go get her book. Thanks to you guys for listening. Think good thoughts for me, please. I'm serious. Knock on wood. Come on. Come on, universe. Just, uh, you know, just deliver me a child. Just some healthy, happy family. Is that too much to ask? (laughs) 